Let's pray together. O God, in you we find great wisdom and eternal love. And you want nothing more than to reveal that wisdom and love to us. So, Lord, open our minds and our hearts to what you would teach us this day. Thank you for your word. May your word find deep root in our lives and bear fruit, so that in all things you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning to all of you. It's a beautiful day, so I'm glad that you chose to be here for a beautiful hour together to uh, worship our Lord. Uh, we are in uh, the midst of a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We're making our way through. Actually, we've only just begun, so if you're new to us, you haven't missed too much. Uh, it actually feels kind of good to focus on, on uh, Jesus. The theme is meeting Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Because when you think about all the distractions that are in the world and in our culture and in our church and in our lives, it's just good to get down to basics and talk about Jesus. The real Jesus, not the Jesus of our imaginings, not Jesus as we want Jesus to be, but the Jesus as he comes to us in God's holy word. It's that Jesus we meet. Last week we met John the Baptist. His role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. His message in a word was, repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn towards the Lord, for the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Turn while you still can. Actually, John's message was rather stern. It came across as a warning. This is your chance. The Lord is, may come today. Turn from your sin. Move towards him. Well, in spite of that stern message, people from everywhere came out into the wilderness to hear John preach. And many responded to his message by confessing their sins, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan as a sign of their repentance, forgiveness of, of their sin. But then the story in Mark continues. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. News of the spiritual revival led by John reached the land of Galilee. It reached the streets and the homes of the small village of Nazareth. And it reached a humble workshop where a carpenter was working at his bench. Jesus knew that his hour had come. So one day, Jesus showed up at the Jordan. He appeared with no fanfare, there was no trumpets, trumpet call, there was no roll of the drums, there was no chorus of angels, but he came quietly and humbly, 
one among the crowds wishing to be baptized by John. Now, here is the puzzling thing. Maybe you've wondered about it. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People came out to the Jordan, heard John preach, and they confessed their sins. But we know Jesus was the Messiah, the very Son of God, and therefore had no sins to confess. So why then would Jesus submit to John's baptism? Well, a clue is found in Matthew's gospel, because according to Matthew, when Jesus came to John, John protested and said, shouldn't I be baptized by you? And Jesus said, let it be for now, it is proper for us to do so, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is what I have to do in order to fulfill God's purpose to make all things right. And so Jesus begins by going down into the Jordan to take his stand by the side of sinners. By submitting to John's baptism, he who was sinless nevertheless identifies fully with sinful humanity, with people like you and me, sinners that we be. He identifies with those he came to save. So it was his baptism by being, by, by being baptized by John that was an act of love on Jesus' part. Again, an act of self-identification. One commentator on this passage put it so beautifully. He says, when you see the sinless Christ going to the sinner's baptism... You are seeing love going to a great redeeming act of self-identification. It was a prophecy of what the coming years were to bring, when the Lord of glory was to earn the name friend of publicans and sinners, to go where need called, reckless of his reputation, to sit often at outcast tables and to die between two thieves. As it is written in Isaiah, he was numbered among the transgressors, so that at the Jordan, Jesus took his stand by the side of sinners, making their shame his shame, their trouble his trouble, their penitence his penitence, their burden his burden. It was the beginning of the work that was crowned at Calvary when he carried the burden away forever. It's a beautiful thought, therefore. Jesus came to the, to the Jordan to be baptized by John as an act of identification with people like us. The one who came, the sinless one, came to identify with our condition. But this baptism clearly was no ordinary water baptism. For when Jesus came up out of the waters, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This event told in all four Gospels is crucially important in the life of Jesus. It marked the beginning point of his public ministry. And true to form, Mark's account of Jesus' baptism is very short, very brief, three sentences in our English Bibles. But there is a lot going on in this scene. 
Jesus sees heaven being torn open, ripped apart. We're not talking about Jesus coming up out of the waters and looking up into the blue sky and seeing a little door ajar. But we're talking about something that's a much bigger deal than that. In fact, when we think about heaven, we ought not to think of always up, spatially up, you know. But in the Bible, heaven is God's dimension behind ordinary reality. So that when the Bible says heaven was torn open, it's though a huge invisible curtain was pulled back right in front of us. So that instead of a pulpit and, and a table and chairs and stained glass, or in Jesus' case, instead of the river, the desert, and the crowds, we find ourselves in the presence of a different reality altogether. In Jesus' baptism, the curtain of heaven has been pulled back and we see ultimate reality. We see God breaking into the world in a new, more powerful way in His Son, Jesus. And those who have the eyes of faith can see it and can experience it. Imagine that. The curtains of heaven being pulled apart so that we see life as it is and we see the one who is at the center of life, Jesus himself, the very Son of God. The Old Testament prophets spoke of God rending the heavens and coming down to save his people. So that in Jesus, the heavens have been torn open. God has come in Jesus to save people. And it's interesting that in this gospel, when Jesus dies upon the cross, the centurion, the Roman centurion says, truly, you are the son of God. And then we're told the curtain of the temple is torn into. The heavens are, are, are torn apart. And once again, we see ultimate reality. We see God's dimension in a new way. We see Jesus as the Son of God, the one who's come to save the world. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his baptism, the heavens are, are pulled apart. We see reality as it is. We see Jesus as he is. And at the very end of his ministry, upon his death, again, the curtains of heaven are pulled open. And we see Jesus in all his glory. Mark then tells us that the Spirit then descended upon Jesus like a dove. God's blessing, God's power, God's choice has come to rest on this man. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit, set apart for his special work, and he's equipped and empowered to carry out his mission. And then a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So that here is God the Father's personal affirmation of Jesus as his own beloved son. It's God's stamp of approval on the person and coming work of Jesus. And if, therefore, Jesus is the one upon whom God has given his seal of approval, if Jesus is indeed the very Son of God, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit of God rests, then you and I must take to heart what Jesus says 
and what He does. We must listen to Him. We must study Him. We must follow Him. And we must love Him. So Jesus' baptism is the keystone of His life and ministry. His baptism was absolutely unique. He had a special relationship with the Father. And these words, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, confirmed that relationship and Jesus' identity as the one and only Son of God. But now here's the takeaway for us. This is where all of this, all that I've been saying, touches our lives. Because you can't really think about Jesus' baptism without thinking about our own baptism. There's a sense in which, especially at the time of our baptism, and at all other times as well, the living God says to you and to me what God the Father said to Jesus. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. You see, if we have been baptized into Christ, believe in His name, God sees us not as, as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. God looks at us and sees Jesus in us, and He says, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. In Christian baptism... There is forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, and the bestowal of dignity as a beloved son or daughter of God. We are washed, we're filled with the Spirit, and God says to each of us, because of my one and only Son, therefore you also are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And this is the good news. This is the heart of the gospel. Each of us is highly valued and deeply loved by God. And I do not think we can hear that often enough. Sadly, many a person grew up never hearing such words, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son, I love you, with you I'm pleased. Many people have grown up never hearing those words from an earthly mother or father. They never heard their parent tell them how special they are, how they're loved, how they're glad that they are the people that they are. I read a sad email the other day on a blog site. It read, my older sister committed suicide a few years ago. She was in her 50s. I was reading some of her things that her daughter let me see, and one of the things in the box was a copy of an email to a friend of hers. In the email, she thanks this person for being in her life and for loving her because in her entire life, she never truly felt loved by anyone, including our parents, siblings, her ex-husband, daughter, etc. She says, I have that same feeling. I have never felt truly loved by my parents and definitely not by my siblings, except for this sister to a degree. I don't think my ex-husband truly loved me. I have a teenage daughter, and I guess she loves me, but I never really get a sense of great love from her. And then they, she continues, why do people have these feelings of being unloved? 
Rationally, I know my daughter loves me and would be devastated without me. Emotionally, I just don't feel it. And I've never felt it from anyone. My sister, too, never felt love from anyone except apparently from this friend of hers. And you just wonder how many people feel unloved, not valued. One of the most important things to grasp in this life is the truth that is proclaimed in Christian baptism. We are beloved by God and we are special to Him. And some of us have such a hard time believing they are loved. There are so many voices in the world that say to us, you're worthless, you don't count for anything, your life doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's all so pointless. You are a nobody. You are, you are ugly. Now, those things may not be said to, to us directly, but they come to that message comes to us loud and clear in different ways, different messages in our culture. You don't matter. And you know what? We can play that tape in our head. You know that? I guess I don't. Nobody loves me. Woe is me. Wish I could just check out. It all leads to emptiness and self-contempt. For years and years now, Marilyn Monroe has been an icon of our culture. Uh, she's been a symbol in a way of the emptiness and the sensuality of our time. Arthur Miller, in his autobiography, Time Bends, tells of his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. And during the filming of the movie The Misfits, he watched Marilyn descend into the depths of depression and despair. He feared for her life as he watched their growing estrangement from each other and her paranoia and her growing dependence on barbiturates. And one evening, after a doctor had been persuaded to give her yet another shot, Miller stood watching her as she slept, and he reflected, I have found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were to wake and I were able to say, God loves you, darling, and she were able to believe it? How I wish I still had my religion and she hers. Such poignant words, right? Somebody who outwardly was so successful and so popular, but she felt so unloved. If only she knew how much God loved her. If only we all did, right? You are special to God. Even if you were the only person in the universe, God would still consider you worth all the trouble of coming down from heaven and saving you by dying for you. You are God's special child, beloved by Him. 
And God says something to you and to me, something like this. God says, I've called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I'm yours. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. I've molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I've carved you in the palm of my hands and hidden you in the shadows of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care more intimate than a mother for a child. I've counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step so that wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you rest, I will keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You belong to me. Know that you are deeply loved and valued by me. So when you begin to hear voices out in the world or inside yourself that tell you that you are a worthless nobody, put your hand on your head or splash, your, splash some water on your face and say to yourself, I am a baptized Christian. I am beloved by God. And the truth of God will chase away all the lies of the world. You are my dear, dear child. With you, I'm extremely delighted. <laughs> I made you, and I redeemed you. You are mine. We cannot talk about Jesus' baptism without thinking about our own baptism. And there's much to talk about here, actually. There's much to think about. At our baptism, we're not only given a new identity as a son or daughter of God, but you and I are given a new calling, a new commission. In our baptism, we go down into the water, dying to our old self, our old sinful nature, and we come up out of the water, new people, with a new mission to, to live a new life in Christ. Our mission is now to live for Him and not for ourselves. Our mission is to live out our true identity as sons and daughters of God. And that means leaving behind the old life of sin and selfishness, self-centeredness, and living a new quality of life motivated and empowered by the love of God. And so the question then is, will we be able to live out this new identity? Will we stay true to who we are in Christ? Will we live His way? Or will we go back to the old way and live as a child of the devil? Will we give in to temptation? Will we forget who we are and whose we are? What about temptation? How did Jesus handle it? 
Well, that's a whole other topic. And so you have to come back next week to hear about it. Stay tuned. I know you're on the edge of your seats, ready to hear. They've got to come back. For as soon as Jesus was baptized, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. What might the implications of that be for us who are called by his name? An old Christian teacher asked, what's the worst thing an evil urge can achieve? And he answered his own question, to make one forget that he or she is a child of a king. So don't forget who you are. Hold your head high. You are not worthless. You are indeed special. You know above all that you are loved by God, and with you He's well pleased. Upon you His favor rests. You are a son or daughter of the Most High. So now live in the light of that incredible truth. Let's pray together. Gracious God, help us to hear your personal affirmation of who we are as your people created and redeemed by you. You have adopted us as your sons and daughters. We are your children, dear to your heart. Thank you, Lord. Help us remember that as we go forth through life. Help us to listen to your voice, the voice that comes from heaven rather than the voices around us, which would tell us that life is cheap and what we do doesn't amount to anything. Lord, help us to stay true to who you have made us to be and to live out our identity as your children. Give us your power. Give us your Holy Spirit that we may live for you each moment of our lives. To you be all the praise and all the glory. Amen. Amen and amen.